Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello from me, Richard Heller, on a rather wet and windy morning in south-east London. Apologies from Peter, who's been called away from us again. Very glad, as usual, to have in his place Roger Alton, sports columnist to The Spectator, distinguished former editor. Welcome, Roger. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, it's a bit gloomy where I am, but I'm looking forward to the cricket, actually, very much. Yeah, interesting day in prospect. We're very, very glad to welcome onto the podcast Ian Smith. He's an academic, he's a teacher, and above all, a cricketer who's a friend of long-standing of the great dramatist Harold Pinter. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Ian, you were, I think, recruited into um, Harold Pinter's cricket club, or the cricket club um, of which he was chairman, the Gaieties, by, by Harold himself. And then you had a particularly close relationship with him for the next 20 years or so, I think. Well, yes. In the late 80s, just before I started my doctorate at Oxford, I was touring as a musician with a band called the Ink Spots. You'll have heard of them. Mm. They were playing Whispering Grass to audiences of pensioners. Anyway, <laughs> in the late 80s, I played for the Times Literary Supplement against the publishers. I had a reputation as a man who could keep a straight bat and eat his peas with a fork. And so I, I turned up at the TLS cricket match. There was a very lavish lunch beforehand. Um, I was nervous. I didn't know anybody. I stood at the bar clutching a Coca-Cola for half an hour and resolved that I would speak to the next person who came to the bar, um, who came to the bar holding a glass of white wine and said, do you have any bottles of this? And while the bartender went away, I said, look, I know none of these bastards. My name's Ian. What's yours? And he said, Harold Pinter. <laughs> um, obviously, I was devastated, not only to think this is Harold Pinter, but also if a random sample of this gathering is Harold Pinter, who <laughs> the rest of them? Um, but it was a great way to meet him. Taken by surprise, I said that I'd just read his essay on Arthur Wellard. Well, I'd read it a few years before, but it was vividly in my mind. And so we spoke about Arthur Wellard, and that was a wonderful introduction. And then we both made runs in that match, and he invited me to play for Gaieties. Um, he sent me a letter inviting me, saying it's a good standard of cricket, which is important to remember. I think Gaieties was not a particularly social cricket side. It, it, it came from the days when Sunday cricket in London was the standard where the gentlemen's touring sides like the Free Foresters and so on were of a, of a high standard. And lots of very good players had played for Gaieties and Harold liked it because there was a cadre of quite serious cricketers there, as did I, having played in the Birmingham League and so on. Mm. My encounter with Pinter was always with the Harold Pinter 11, which was separate from the Gaieties and a more slightly more sociable thing, but it was very, very clear that the Gaieties is a serious cricket club and the, the people I know playing it, they were bloody good cricketers. So it was obviously a very interesting thing. And also your unbeaten 235 bespeaks that or whatever it was, the, the two of you, you and... Uh... 285, darling. So <laughs> you, played in, you played in the Gunnersbury Park match. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah I played that a couple of times. Yeah. I've got a picture of me going out to open with Harold in that match. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was hugely enjoyable, I thought. And um, 
I remember Vivian Merchant, funnily enough, came along wow. when they were going through a very difficult time and she looked menacingly at <laughs> Deep Square Leg on a blanket. But it, it was a very, <laughs> I hugely enjoyed it. And Tom Stoppard kept uh, kept Wicket and whatnot. And our, our captain at one point, the late lamented Pat Enser, wanted to go out and do the toss with Tom Stoppard, although he wasn't because the Rosencrantz and Guildenstone just come out and that has that long coin tossing sequence at the beginning. So it's all quite a good laugh. It's a wonderful thing. And Harold did like that. Um, and he was a very sociable. Very, player. very, very. And loved his cricket. And Antonio came along to the pub after and so on. So it was a wonderfully enjoyable thing. I remember a game at um, Cranley, I think, where uh, halfway through the match, Harold was umpiring and Antonia drew up in a limo. <laughs> um, and Harold said to me rather darkly, I have to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I never knew Vivian Merchant, but Harold spoke of her and um, guided me to some of her work on film. Amazing. Yeah, yeah very good. Um, Harold's seriousness about the game was often construed as an excessive competitiveness, a wanting to win, a wanting to put the opposition down. And it never was that. It was an intensity of engagement with the game. Just as his verbal intercourse could seem to be very rivalrous and confrontational, but in fact was an intensity and sincerity yeah. with language. There's something of value, something to be thought of, something to be cared about. And if somebody used language unkindly, it hurt Harold, you know, uh, almost physically. I remember one day, we, one of the players for the team, it was, Harold had just written Moonlight and, and I'd read it. And um, we were in the bar, some of us, and, uh, and Harold said, I've written a play. And instead of, as actors do, instead of saying, that is fantastic, Harold. I love your plays. Please tell us about it. <laughs> ben said, oh, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> and, started, and started telling us about his fucking play, which was <laughs> dreadful. And it turned out hadn't actually been written in the no. sense of committed to any sort of paper or even cogitation, as far as I could tell. And, <laughs> and, and, and Ben said at one stage, it's very scatological. And, and I saw a look cross Harold's <laughs> face. But Ben continued, you know, and Harold said, what did you say? <laughs> then he said, it's scatological. The logic's completely scattered. <laughs> <laughs> For Harold, the experience was like the poor chap who's interrogated in the birthday party. Have I been inserted into a Kafkaesque world where <laughs> logic means something else? Which brings us to cricket, which mm. is, as you know, not a matter of competing to better the opposition, but to play the game properly, you know, which, which, which doesn't mean with aristocratic largesse and a well-played old chap, you win, uh, which the aristocracy have never done, despite yeah. their claims to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it means engaging and it means caring. And then to some degree, as with a beautifully structured drama like Harold's, even though it appears to be thrown together in a manner that Ben would call mm -hmm. scatological, and we definitely wouldn't. As with that, you do enter a universe which is a little more well-structured uh, yeah. than the one in which we live from day to day, and which perhaps offers, offers the possibility of rendering our day-to-day -day universe a little bit more logical. And carelessness or contempt for that hurt Harold very much, just as carelessness or contempt for cricket hurt him. Yeah. That's fascinating. 
you you said I I only hadn't come across the Arthur Wellard piece until uh, the, uh, we're looking at it for this podcast. I thought it was absolutely stunning piece of prose and uh, inside both into um, Harold, but obviously wonderful about Arthur Wellard. And what? How much specifically? I mean, where did you find it? Was it well known the piece? Because I'm annoyed that I didn't know about it. It's marvelous. And what else directly has Harold written about cricket? Well, I mean, I, I lo- first of all, I love Arthur Wellard. Um, to be honest, Roger, it, it has been in the public domain for some time. I think it was, it was in The Cricketer, and, and it was also in a volume, a wonderful volume called Summer Days, edited by Michael Melford, with mm. literary characters talking. He even interviewed Beckett over the phone. Mm. Okay, so Harold's essay, Arthur Wellard, is about the man who held the record for the highest number of sixes in a season before Botham broke it, I think helped by a lot of declaration bowling in the mid eighties. Wellard was a Somerset and England all-rounder. Fantastic player, seam bowler, hard-hitting lower middle order batsman who made his way into the England team in the age of gentleman amateurs and token representation from Yorkshire or, you know, some from Yorkshire. So he came from Somerset into the England side in the 1930s, which is not easy to do. He ended up playing like Dennis Compton, for example, for the gaieties, looking for a high level of cricket and let's say sociability, let's not say drinking. And so Arthur, unlike Compo, Arthur stayed and played for gaieties for many, many years and then umpired. And Wellard became Harold's friend. And I think funnily enough, Wellard found in Harold something similar to what Harold found in me, which was somebody who really cared about the warp and weft of his work. So Harold really cared whether Arthur played forward or back to an off spinner on a different pitch, or where to put short leg or where to put square leg. Harold had a wonderful relationship with Arthur for many years, and he wrote about him in his essay, Arthur Wellard, which intercuts memories of Arthur playing with gaieties and umpiring with gaieties with these brilliant accounts of Arthur's accounts of playing in the 1930s with legends like Hammond, uh, Larwood, and so on. Um, he said Larwood, Larwood, he was a bit quick or something like that. And it's very, it's a, it's a fantastic essay by Pinter and, and I couldn't recommend it more highly to anybody yeah. in the world. Yeah. Arthur Wellard is wonderful. I love the bit where he asks Wellard, what was Hammond like in his prime, Arthur? Mm. And Arthur says, Hammond, I used to bowl to Hammond at Taunton. <laughs> Skipper set two rings on the offside, an inner ring and an outer ring, and Wally banged them through both off the back foot. Never anybody to touch Wally off the back foot through the offside. Oh. And Harold says, and what was he like off the front foot, Arthur? <laughs> Which Arthur replies, which Arthur replies, he was bloody useful off the front foot too. (laughs) (laughs) It's a brilliant essay. And then there's another essay by Harold called Hutton and the Past, Mm. which I talk about in my, um, well, in my book on Harold, but um, my first book on Harold, Mm. second is yet to be finished. Um, Hutton and the Past is a pretty amazing piece of writing superficially about fragmented cricketing memories, but actually a lot more about him. There's an incredible memory of the day Harold 
faked a nervous breakdown to get out of RADA um, while preserving his government grant. Um, and how he, he brought it off, he, he was released and he met up with Henry and Mick, his friends from the Hackney days, and they ran to the corner to jump on a bus that took them to Lords. And as they came into the ground, someone played a late cut that skimmed over the summer grass, the ball gleaming in the light, right towards them as if it was a welcome. Um, <laughs> Lovely. Oh. And in that, Harold writes about Hutton, and Harold's relationship with Hutton was very intense, I think. I put in, in my book, I put that Harold regarded Hutton as an artist comparable with any other, certainly worthy of the respect that any other artist was due. And he was so impatient with the notion that Hutton wasn't a stylist. For Harold, style was not flourish. You know, it wasn't a gesture to be added to function. Style was the subtlety and integrity of function, as with his work. I mean, Harold was a genius writer, he was an even better cutter uh, of writing, unbelievable. Um, I mean, his screenwriting is amazing, what he cuts out of the novels and yet gets in. Um, but yeah, so Harold's. I think Harold aspired to be as sophisticated a technician as a writer as Hutton was as a player. And um, there's a character in his, in a way, his, one of his magnum opuses. You, you will know the film The Long Good Friday, which Bob Hoskins yes. plays in it, Gangster, right? So that character, Harold Shand, is based on Harold Pinter. I mean, mm. anybody, knows, anybody who knows Harold and Antonio, actually, so Helen Mirren's playing Antonia to, um, or a, a, a version of Antonia, to, to Bob Hoskins playing Harold. And Bob Hoskins always said, well, I, I got a lot of it from Lenny in The Homecoming, but, you know, for heaven's sake, the character's called Harold, he talks like Harold, and so on. Anyway, the character Len in The Homecoming is, I, I would say from talking to Harold over decades about his work, the character with whom he has the most intense relationship, right? Even though Spooner and Hurst in No Man's Land, also named after cricketers, are very, very important dystopian self-portraits. Um, so Hutton is in Harold's work in a way. Um, there's a character called Len in the Dwarfs as well, the most autobiographical play. And Harold was very impatient with the failure to understand people's work as a cricketer. I think one thing I said in, in the essay in Wisden is um, so that so I'm standing there with Harold and Lord Longford at the Oxford Union in the 1990s and and Longford makes a casual remark about Ranjit Sinji saying he but he just played the leg, leg glance all the time and Harold said he did not he also dove and he cut and he could hook the ball there was far more to him than the leg glance you know, and, and there was a sense of personal, there was no animosity towards his father-in-law as an individual, but there was an intensity of engagement with his respect for Ranji that demanded that Harold say something um, and correct that. 
interesting that um, to me that Harold was so dedicated in correcting the record of about Ranjit Sinchi, whom he hadn't even seen. I mean, he must have only been aware of those qualities of Ranjit through through research, through through reading about him. Yeah, he did. I mean, he had the Jubilee Book of Cricket right there on his shelves, mm. not quite next to Ulysses, but in a similar similar place. Did, did he play cricket at school, Harold? I mean, where did this? Well, I mean, Harold, Harold comes from the days before, don't people say that the 1953 Cup final was the occasion which tilted the balance of working class urban sporting allegiance away from cricket and towards football? You know, everybody, everybody bought a TV for the coronation. And then a few weeks before, they all watched the Cup final, which became the Matthews Cup final. Mm. Um, Stan Mortensen's widow wouldn't invite Matthews to his funeral because Mortensen <laughs> scored three goals in the so-called Matthews Cup final um, <laughs> and said, I'm not having him there. I don't want them to call it the Stan Mortensen, <laughs> the Stanley <laughs> Matthews funeral. Um, anyway, so Harold, so Harold came from a time that is lost where a working class petit bourgeois Jewish boy from the East End would naturally play and follow cricket. Mm. So that's entirely that's a, yeah. natural. And then, and then his reading about the game began very young, you know, and he read. And his, his allegiance to Yorkshire cricket, of course, was both a class thing and an aesthetic thing for him. Yorkshire aesthetic, come on. <laughs> was he taken by his dad to watch cricket? No, I don't think he was. Harold's dad was a tailor's cutter. Um, it's funny, his dad died and um, Harold told me his dad had died when we were standing at the wicket um, on the John Paul Getty ground. Because um, we, we were playing them and I was captain and I took Harold out to look at the wicket and talk about what we might do, which tells you something about Harold. You know, there, there were there were, Lots and lots of people there. Jeremy Irons is there drinking champagne and so on. But Harold wants to go and look at the wicket and discuss what we're going to do, whether we're going to bat or field, winning the toss, you know, who's going to bowl well on this and so on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so he told me about his dad dying. I don't think his dad was a formative influence on his interest okay. in cricket. No, mm. no, it was, it was, it was him and his friends. There's a. He and Mick Goldstein, Mick Goldstein, wonderful uh, old uh, guy from the East End. Um, and yeah, and Mick and Henry and Harold, they used to meet before school and play cricket against a tree in yeah. the park in Hackney. Mm. It, it was what they did. It, it was unsusceptible to interrogation, mm. almost to causality. It was what they did. Mm, mm, mm. Kids were still doing that in the 50s when I came to England and started playing cricket when I was a child. Uh, it was still playing sort of street cricket and informal cricket and also any sort of place you could you could find. And that seems, to, well, oh. sadly, to have disappeared. You just do not see children playing that sort of informal cricket anymore. It's always very structured. And it's something that I think that's driving the game into the upper middle classes, But that's which is something we've discussed in other podcasts. Agreed, absolutely. You say in your essay on, on Harold in Wisdom 2009 that um, although he never saw Ranji or Hurst, he saw Hammond and Constantine and Woolley and Bradman. 
Um, he would recall in detail their shots, how they held the bat and walked to the wicket. If he saw Woolley, who retired in 1938, he must have been about eight or nine himself. And if you say his father didn't take him uh, to matches, perhaps somebody else did, or he found some way of going to um, see Frank Woolley on his own or with his friends. But I will say, I'm... I think your point is well made that, that there may have been somebody taking him. Having said that, this links to your point that cricket is so much more structured and people's engagement with it is so much more structured. It, the absence, as you say, of pickup games, of, of, of various forms of cricket. So somebody in Harold's position didn't need to be introduced to the game. As for going, what I do know is from, from Harold's friends that by his teens, Harold had a precocious and authoritative knowledge of London bus routes, <laughs> which also involved fair evasion uh, <laughs> taken to a Le Carre-esque level of sophistication. Um, so, and, 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 and he was astoundingly independent as a teenager. Um, mm his character was astoundingly well-formed, if always self-questioning. Then I'd like to um, go back to your remarks about Harold as a screenwriter uh, yeah. and his gift for cutting out the extraneous from, from novels, which is, a, you, you rightly say, is, is a great art in screenwriting. What's that great phrase of William Faulkner's? All your little darlings must be killed. And Harold was a great, as you say, he was a great, great cutter. Um, one screenplay he wrote, a particularly good one, was um, uh, was The Go-Between. And yeah. he had the opportunity, of course, in The Go-Between, of including a cricket scene, a big cricket scene. just wondered if he'd ever described the making of that scene uh, and whether he felt a more you know, personal relationship with it than, than much of his other work, whether he even perhaps tried to direct it himself when it was made. Well... I mean, oh, there's so much. Funnily enough, absolutely. Um, I mean, Harold as a screenwriter, yeah, the, the relationship between director and writer was very intimate and symbiotic in Harold's relationship with Joe Losey, who directed The Go-Between and a couple of other fabulous Harold films as well. So this is The Go-Between, where you have a central cricket match scene between the, the men of the aristocratic house and the tenant farmers and so on from the estate. And the principal cricketers in the house include the Edward Fox character, who's the aristocratically appropriate suitor, probably impotent of Julie Christie. And then Julie Christie's true beloved, Ted the farmer played by Alan Bates. And in the match, it seems certain that the house is going to win. And yet Ted comes out and in his rough unfashioned way, strikes a brilliant innings and brings the tenants to the brink of victory in the match, only for chance to catch him out, literally. Um, he is caught out and, and it all falls apart and our hero, well, our narrator is dismayed. And this is filmed with Edward Fox bowling to Alan Bates in the film. And Harold said, I mean, Edward Fox really wasn't bad. He was quite good, actually, a decent medium pacer. But Alan Bates had no idea. Mm -hmm. So 
Harold Dot, a friend of his from Gover's Cricket School, a guy who'd coached at Gover's Cricket School, one of the great swearers of all time. I've <laughs> never met anybody who had the vocabulary, the range, the innovation with profanity that Fred, Alfredo Palazzi, right, who was a hard-bitten off-spinner. Uh, he'd done lots of league proing. He was a coach at Gover's. Gover himself was a prodigious swearer. <laughs> Um, and drinker, but Fred could match him. And Fred was a mainstay of Gaiety's and could really play. Um, so, and also appropriately swarthy and muscular, you know, very, you know, magnetic man, actually. He was in some ways what Alan Bates wanted to be. And um, so they would have a, they, the, there's a scene where, where the Alan Bates character, Ted, hits a big six off Edward Fox. And um, so they, the way they do it is it's a close-up of, of Alan Bates's face as the ball is delivered. And then you cut to a long shot, which is a Fred doubling, smiting the ball over deep mid-wicket. And um, so they go for a rehearsal and Edward Fox rolls up, length ball, on off stump, moving in slightly. And Fred middles it right out of the screws and it screams across the ground and hits by accident the tiny corrugated iron roof of a toilet in, in the distance. <laughs> and, and Joe Losey, an American, Harold said, so, so Joe Losey, Joe Losey says, marvelous, marvelous, right. Okay, let's go for a take. And Freddie, when you hit the ball, hit it onto that tin roof again. <laughs> and Harold said, and <laughs> Harold, Harold said, look, Joe, it's not your fault. You don't understand. You couldn't possibly replicate that shot. It, it's entirely impossible. That was a brilliant shot. That was one in a thousand. You simply can't expect a man to reproduce a shot like that on demand. Anyway, and I said this to Joe and he nodded very solemnly. He always respected what I said. And then he reached inside his pocket and took out his wallet. And then he reached inside his wallet and took out a five pound note. <laughs> and Joe held up this five pound note and he looked at Fred and he said, Freddy. <laughs> and sure enough, they did the take and Freddy nailed it and hit it onto the tin roof again. <laughs> and it is audible in the movie. It's a beautiful thing. And Harold got Fred a job, um, not just a job hitting sixes on celluloid, but he got him a job as doorman at the Palladium. <laughs> um, Freddy said, Fred, oh, fuck, he loved that. I love that, Ian. That was, I mean, you're a musician. You know what it's like working with dancers. Well, there were dancers all over the place at that Palladium. <laughs> and so Fred, so Fred was in his element working at the Palladium, courtesy of Harold. And then, um, so one Sunday, they were, we were playing Roehampton, and, and Fred explained, so, you know, I said to Harold, look, I brought this dancer with me, and uh, we're batting second. I mean, by the tea interval, she was on to go. Know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so I said, I said to Harold, I said, look, I'll open the innings, all right? I've, I've got that feeling. Uh, and Harold said, but Fred, you're not an opener. I said, don't worry, Harold. So I played a few shots, got a few runs, got out, left with a dancer, stayed out all night, told the wife I'd been drinking with Harold and Chris Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the next day, the Monday, uh, Pickford's removal van arrives at at the Palladium 
with Fred's possessions. Message for Mr. Polotsky with Fred's possessions in it. His wife's thrown him out. There's a note which she expects. So there's an envelope with his name on in her hand. Fred opens it expecting, well, he doesn't know what, which of his crimes has been found out. And uh, in it is just a copy of the postcard that Harold has sent to him, excoriating him, not for his conduct with the dancer, but for leaving a cricket match prematurely. Um, <laughs> and still. rightly so, and hey. rightly so. Well, quite, exactly, exactly. But the marriage survived and Fred's son played for Gaiety's. Um, he was really a boxer, but he played. Um, and, um, and, and Fred survives in that incredible film, which as one of you said, Harold wrote it, Harold wrote this screenplay about this love affair while he himself was involved in a love affair, which didn't work out. And, and he had a very intense engagement with that film. And I think as, as you were saying, Richard, Harold could cut creatively in a way that, well, he could cut things in. That was the great thing about Harold. He would leave things in, he would leave in a trace or a hint, just enough. It, it is the novel and the film are sort of full of English understatement, aren't they? They're full of you know emotions not expressed, and as you just say, they, emotions hinted at, and and he did convey that absolutely brilliantly. Mm. I think it's it's interesting what you say about Fred. He's obviously a very good cricketer. You talked about Arthur Wellard who played for England, playing for you. You had Ozzy Gooding, I think I can remember, uh, who yes. played as an international player. So I mean, yes. the standard of gaieties was. It was an extremely good cricket team, wasn't it? Extremely good. At its best, it was it was good. Yes. And Gaiety's was a much happier club playing against the Sunday first teams of proper cricket clubs like the, the big Surrey championship sides now, like Beddington and Banstead and Sick Cup and Hampstead and so on. And when I was playing, the leagues were beginning to come to the south so that you know, competitive Saturday cricket was coming and Sunday was becoming increasingly a sort of hit and giggle game. And we, we used to play every year against Tim Rice's heartaches, mm. but that wasn't really a match sort of socially or in cricketing terms because they were wealthy and privileged and out to enjoy being wealthy and privileged on a Sunday. Although I've subsequently become friends with a lot of them and, you know, I saw Tom Graveney's son, Tim, the other day at, at the play that I did, but... Um, Are you playing now yourself? No, I'm not. I mean, I, I don't play. I, I follow, you know, I love the game. You know, my friend Jeremy Coney comes and stays when he's doing the commentary and we oh. talk about the game and so on. And, and, and I've written this play about cricket that I'm, I'm working on a lot at the moment. And that, you know, cricket, cricket history mean a lot to me. Could you say something about your play? You know, I mean, I, I read the Michael Billington piece. It just sounds a really, really interesting play. Well, thank you. I mean, it's it's about Colin Cowdery, and some people say to me, "Oh, it doesn't sound like a very glamorous cricketer to write a play about. Why not write about Ted Dexter or somebody?" But of course, that's the thing. It's about English social history and change. It's a comedy. Michael Billington, like, was very moved by it, and and rightly so. Um, it's full of jokes that Harold would have appreciated mm. and tricks of getting a laugh out of an audience that he taught me. So, yeah, so it's a short play. It's about Colin Cowdery. It's seemingly 
almost in, it's a comedy it's a comedy people laugh all the way through and then they blink mm -hmm. away to the end yeah. but it's about and it's about that i must say uh, peter oborn writes brilliantly about cowdery in his book on Dolivera. cowdery did not begin life as lord cowdery he was a very interesting figure whose class background was conflicted and contested by different forces through his career and in his career, you see the changing face of English cricket. Um, there are some key scenes with Tony Gregg in the play, right at the cusp of Packer. Mm. Um, and Gregg would have loved Colin to help him with that. And then the other thing about Cadre is this phenomenal talent, which he never really allowed to bloom. He never had the sense of entitlement that Peter May had, for example. When I read that Peter May's father-in-law had been a, an active writer on behalf of the British Union of Fascists, it, mm. it affected my perception of, of May's authoritative, dare one say authoritarian manner mm. of the uh, In a way, it never left me. And, and Cowdery, Cowdery, is a, Cowdery is a much more thoughtful One Nation Tory is a fascinating figure to me. I mean, I, I said to Peter, the play is really, it's a love letter to One Nation Toryism from a lifelong pinko. Mm. What's it called, uh, Ian, and where can we see it or read it? It's called I Don't Think We've Met, and we, we've had a couple of performances in London, had a great review in The Guardian, which is terrific, and we're talking to various people about a, a tour, and, it, and it, it's, it's exciting, and I think it'll be, it'll be good. It sounds it's well, we really look look forward to that tour. I don't think we met. It was um, what Cowdery said in his last test appearance, virtually, wasn't it, uh, to to Jeff Thompson? He did <laughs> a very beautiful, understated, you know, thing to say to tear away fast bowlers about to decapitate you, isn't it? Yes. Well, um, absolutely. That's of course that's in. I mean, I don't think we've met. Was Collins? slightly humble brag way of introducing himself to people mm. i mean everybody knew who he was but he would go up to them and say oh i don't think we've met i'm colin cardry mm. and and i mean he was an incredibly lovely and generous man but that was a choice of mode of behavior for someone who was also troubled ambitious brilliant had a great relationship with len hutton len hutton is in the play but yet at that that moment that moment where Cowdery says to Tomo, I don't think we've met, and Tomo says, piss off fatso. I mean, <laughs> Tomo changes his line all the time when he retells the story. Um, but for Tom's, you know, of course, I mean, what, what Colin Cowdery knew was that you can't outsnarl an Australian. Yeah. I mean, this is the terrible mistake that the English have made ever since the Gower generation yeah. of trying to, you know, Nasser Hussain thought we could, we could be more Australian than the Australians. And I remember in league cricket in the 90s and so on, there was a lot of picking up of Aussie style discourse as a sign of cricketing virility and so on. And then, of course, in the in the sort of para cricket discourses that surround the game now, there's this sense that an Aussie style brash ochre aggression will drive out the last vestiges of the class system in English cricket and make us all meritocratic and dynamic and so on. It's a terrible, terrible mistake, both politically, socially, and also in cricketing terms. Because uh, apropos of that, the sort of class structure of 
cricket, both in the way it's played and as I guess in the way it's watched, I'm not sure about that, has emerged into the agenda a bit over the last sort of uh, few months, few years. I just wonder what your views were on that. Well, I will say if, if you grow up in Wolverhampton reading Cardus and CLR James, and you're quite a good player actually, so that you know when you're playing as a mature guy for MCC, county players and test players ask you why you did why you chose not to play first class cricket. But if you grow up in Wolverhampton, reading about the game, loving the game, and then you try to get through any of the structures of patronage, favorite sonnery, um, networking. Uh, the authentication that comes from so-and-so who's identified so-and-so as a talent, then notions of class, geography, privilege are not things that come to the fore. You know, these they have been the sharp end of my experience of cricket, both as a reader about it and as a player for 40 years, you know. As a more than one first class cricketer that I played with, because I ended up playing MCC and so on, asked me why I had chosen not to play first class cricket. Um, I didn't have to choose. <laughs> it, was it was chosen for me. <laughs> and and one, one thing that, I mean, there's so much, and I've listened to several episodes of your podcast discussing this, and I, I thank you as well as commend you for your work in attending to these things and discussing and discussing the economic and financial and social structures in play, let's say in play, you know, rather than that are ruining our game. Um, so I, I thank you and commend you for that. And I wouldn't want to start on that, but I will say it's been lived experience for me from my early teens. Every aspect of my choices in deportment during the game, after the game, what, role I might be able to play when I went to Oxford University and identified that there might be a blue for somebody, there might be two or three places for a blue in two or three years, which would require certain modes of behavior. I was a, I was a commanding opening batsman, obviously wasn't going to get to do that for Oxford when there are so many other people who'd opened at Charterhouse and who'd been identified as talent and so on. Class in English cricket has been a lived reality for anyone who's any good and isn't in the public school network for the last hundred years. The fact that it's become a, a matter of public debate. One thing that you will share my dismay about is the casual sense that some sort of aggressive meritocratic adoption of a market forces model imposed on the English cricketing system will drive all these forces away. Drive all these problems away. Horseshit, isn't it? Well, exactly, exactly. It's and it, indeed, but, but it's quite a and, common. It is, it is quite a common view. And as you say, and and like and and like many forms of shit, it not <laughs> only, as Harold would say, it not only lacks merit, it has active demerits. <laughs> as you say, it's not only horseshit; it's stinking horseshit. <laughs> 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 Um, that's, that's a very striking conclusion, Ian. Um, but I'd like to just go back to um, Harold Pinter for a moment or two. Um, Harold was, of course, a great political activist. I just wondered if he was involved in any of um, cricket's big political issues as they emerged during you know, his lifetime in cricket, particularly 
you know, relations with South Africa, the uh, stranglehold on cricket by amateur elites as administrators, um, was involved in issues like the emancipation, well, the recognition for women cricketers and that kind of thing. Did he get involved in cricket's political controversies in the way that he did, you know, with political control, political issues generally? No, he didn't. I mean, I will say, funnily enough, of course, English cricket has been to a large degree much more dominated by a privileged elite of financial interests in the last 30 years than it ever was during Harold's lifetime. Harold's allegiance to Yorkshire cricket could be taken in the direction of recognizing the validity and quality of league cricket, the fact that in a way in the 19th century, there were two structures of cricket set up in England, not one, rather akin to rugby union and rugby league. Mm. And league cricket on what we call now the M62 corridor was probably stronger than much of the county circuit. I mean, I would back Nelson in the Lancashire League with Leary Constantine against the Essex side of 1937 mm. all day. I mean, and that's another myth. They were playing one day cricket, right? That one day cricket wasn't brought to the game by the Gillette Cup. Mm. Or by television. Television, an asset stripper, you know, presents itself as a benign creator god. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I mean, a lot of, I've done a lot of research into Sidney Francis Barnes um, from Smethwick in the West Midlands. And people say Barnes was a great bowler who played club cricket. Well, he played league cricket, darling, which, which was in many ways of a higher standard you know, there's a fantastic essay, as you know, by C.L.R. James about Barnes mm. in league cricket. And it, so Harold's, Harold's experience of cricket defiantly affirmed the existence of a game beyond the parameters of the first class game as it was curated and presented by the MCC and Wisdom. Mm. And we now have, as you know, a series of moves in cricket to do what's been the most, you know, to do forms of asset stripping and privatization, which have been the dominant and most successful economic models of the last 50 years. So fortunately, actually, that that post dated Harold's engagement with the game, you know, mm -hmm. and Harold would have, he would have said, as, as, as we would say that the parasitism in the economy of English cricket is that test cricket is parasitic upon county cricket and always has been. Mm. Um, I've heard you talk about this, Richard, and you're we so did. right. And, um, and that's not just true economically in terms of the generating of players and so on. It's also true in terms of the impact, the perceived significance of cricket and the ability of spectators and so on to engage with it. Players are produced not only as, I mean, according to the heartbreakingly impoverished economic model that is presented to us, cricket, we're now told that it is the duty of county cricket to prepare players who have a certain number of skills. In other words, who are able dutifully to serve as lower middle ranking functionaries, as skilled labour 
for a corporate structure of cricket, which is obviously controlled from above and that the Harrisons of this world will continue to reap their obscene dividends, validated by a sort of symbiosis with government, which is profoundly offensive. How do you mean television as uh, asset stripping, Ian? I mean, a lot of people would think television has done, and I, I, I think myself, that Sky's, how Sky promoted cricket and club cricket and county cricket since the early uh, 200s or in the 90s is very beneficial, but I, obviously you don't. No, I don't. Um, and it, it's a longer conversation than we have time for, and I, I respect what you say. And... I think the people who are at Sky within the parameters of the economic and social structure where they operate, they, they are well-intentioned and strive to promote, as you say. It's, it's a longer conversation about television and asset stripping, but I think it's, it's a valid counterintuitive thing for me to say, which could be given sustained exposition and contextualization in history. I've lectured quite a bit on sport and broadcasting history and so on. Um, I mean, I will give you one example, right? Take, take the Kerry Packer Circus. That's clearly a mode of asset stripping of a public sector resource. Yes. So Packer wanted to take star cricketers. The fact that they were paid marginally more enables broadcasters now like Sky to present Kerry Packer as an emancipatory project, not just for players, but somehow for audiences and so on. Now, we know that that was an asset stripping of a public sector. But you also know that Dennis Lilly was being paid not very much money. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, did, I did cover that. Um, only just. <laughs> Well, I, we could. No, I mean, one thing is, Dennis Lilly worked as, a, as an advertising executive for a soft drinks manufacturer. He made a fucking fortune out of cricket before <laughs> he made more. That's interesting. From, from, you know, and this is, this is another, it's like, you know, the Shamata thing where, mm. um, you know, amateurs' expenses exceeded the, <laughs> the remuneration oh, yeah. of on the same sides and so on. Well, the supposed amateurism of Australian cricketers in the 1960s and 70s, um, you know, enabled them to be very, very well rewarded and so on. And, and, and I think for many cricketers, the, the high numbers paid to performers who succeed on television are used to persuade the public that those who play the game in general are better rewarded. And I, and I don't think they are. I mean, I know more about the structure of rewards in golf, but I know enough about cricket to know that, you know, there's an argument that cricketers are in some ways worse paid than they were. Mm. Uh, and, and the structures of economic support are much more precarious than they were. Well, it's, Ian, this is a really interesting topic. As you say, it's, a, it's really a... A um, another conversation. We may have to ask you back for. Uh, uh, we will ask you back. I think for a second innings at some point to uh, to continue it. What you have conveyed to us very um, very powerfully and some and indeed movingly is what a wonderful experience it was to have shared cricket with Harold Pinter, and thank you for that. Um, what really comes over from the conversation we've just had is. Not just Pinter's dedication to cricket, but his identity of cricket and writing as as jobs for, for craftsmen, as jobs for, for professionals who've really thought about their work. And that's a very that's a very powerful thought. And thank you for for sharing it with us. Yes, indeed. Fascinating. Thank you for putting up with me.
I hope I can go turn the telly on now without feeling too guilty. <laughs> well, and I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. It's, at which point it's um, goodbye for me, Richard Heller. It's um, not exactly wet, but it's rather rather damp and windy here in South East London. And, and thank you very much indeed. Uh, and, uh, it's goodbye from me, Roger. Awesome.